Hello and welcome to Michael Rain's Outdoor Lives podcast. This is a podcast aimed at mountain leaders, mountaineering instructors, anybody really with an interest in the hills. We cover a whole range of topics. We cover people who work in different aspects of the upland environment. We talk to land managers, landowners, but we also talk to providers of courses. We talk to to botanists, to biologists, you name it. Um, We try and cover the widest possible range of interests that we can in the upland environment. And listen, if there's anybody who you would like us to talk to, and all you got to do is drop us a line and uh, we'll see if we can fix up an interview with that person. These podcasts come to you in two ways. They come to you on Spotify, which is free to air, and they will be on Spotify for around six months' time. They'll sit there so you can take your time and listen to them as and when you wish. Also, uh, they are on Patreon, and you can get the ad-free version on patreon.com forward slash Mike Rain. What's important about the Patreon version is they are immediately uploaded to Patreon. So whereas on Spotify, you have to wait for next week's episode to be released at weekly intervals on Patreon, you get the episode as soon as it's released without adverts. So uh, take a look at that. If you can't remember that address, then just go to my website, mycrane.co.uk. Very easy to find, mycrane.co.uk. Have a look at the workshops on there. Have a look at the books in the shop. Both my books have sale there. The Mountain Leader, A Practical Manual and The Nature of Snowdonia. Um, and, of course, I'm sure you found me on Facebook on Notes from the Hill. So, Facebook Notes from the Hill, mycrane.co.uk, patreon.com forward slash mycrane. Thank you for listening. Hello, my guest today is Robbie Blackhall Miles of Lamberis. He is, amongst other things, a conservation scientist, ethnoecologist, ecology lecturer at the Royal Botanic Gardens Kew, writer, horticulturalist, and the charity Plant Life's Vascular Plant Officer for the National Heritage Lottery funded Natur and Beef Project. That is a partnership project between Natural Resources Wales and nine environmental charities. And we'll find out more about what it is from Robbie instead of me making it up. Um, Robbie, thanks for joining us today. How are you today? I'm fine, thanks, Mike. How are you doing? Well, I'm okay. I should just say to listeners, I'm just at the end of a a little COVID spell. It's my first one, so I've quite enjoyed it. Um, So we are recording this online rather than face to face, but... uh, we're optimistic that'll work well. Robbie, let, can you make sense of that list, please? That's a rather long list of things to do. Uh, how, how does all that work? And, and, and at some point, how is that relevant to us as mountain leaders and mountaineering instructors? So they all completely dovetail into one another. Um, so overall, I'm interested in people and how people interact with nature. That's that's my main thing. And that's why I would describe myself and others have described me as an ethnoecologist. So that's that's someone that uh, that looks at the ecology of people and how people impact the ecology of the natural world. That brings up some questions about what is natural and what isn't natural. Um, And of course, alongside that, 
um, I, I science that stuff. So that makes me a conservation scientist. Um, so I'm always looking for understanding in a, it in a scientific manner. So that's, um, you know, generating questions, answering questions, um, and, and doing so through replicable means. Um, and, um, and the impact of being those two things has led to me lecturing at different scientific institutions. So at the moment, I do some work with Q. Um, I uh, am an honorary lecturer at Bangor University. I hold an um, a honorary associate professorship at Nottingham University. So I get involved in quite a few different academic institutions. Um, and I write about it. I practice what I preach. So um, horticulture effectively is just applied ecology. Um, and because I practice what I preach, I ended up getting myself a full time job working for the charity Plant Life, which allows me to practice what I preach effectively. So um, what I do for Plant Life is I um, act as their vascular plants officer for the Nat National Heritage Lottery funded Nataram Beth project. Nataram Beth, as you said, is this partnership project. And I um, cover the whole of Wales. So I work with little, little sub projects all and some very big sub projects all over Wales. Um, but very specifically, I lead on a project called Tullesai Munith Eruri, which means the mountain jewels of Eruri. And, um, and that's where it becomes relevant to mountain leaders um, and anybody really that spends time in the mountains. So whether you be a hill walker, whether you be an upland farmer, whether you be um, a person working on mountain rescue, you know, and literally anyone that spends time in the mountains is spending time in the mountain environment and um, and interacting with that environment. And ecology isn't just about the species in the environment, but it is about the whole of the jigsaw and understanding how that whole jigsaw works. Um, and so I spend my time tweaking with the jigsaw, if you like, um, to help to conserve 10 of Eruri's rarest Arctic alpine plant species and two of our rarest Arctic alpine invertebrates. Um, and the impact of that work might be in time quite noticeable in the mountains of Eruri. I'll come back to that. Just for listeners, um, not everybody will know what vascular plants are, Robbie. What, what do you mean by vascular plants? So we have vascular structures in our body in the form of veins and arteries. Plants have vascular structures in their bodies in the form of xylem and phloem. They're the, the bodies that allow them to move uh, water and nutrients around their systems so that they can survive. Some plants don't have those structures. Mosses, liverworts, um, alga, they don't have those structures. Um, Whereas ferns and uh, flowering plants, um, trees, you know, all the other plants yeah. on, on yeah. earth do. That, that's uh, cool. Yeah, just to, uh, to see what we're talking about. So you mentioned 10 plants and two invertebrates. I know everybody's going, oh, what are the 10? What are the 10? What are the two invertebrates? <laughs> so, Is that allowed? 
I can name them. In fact, I'm, I'd be pleased to name them. Um, so we've got holly fern, a plant that was sold for six six shillings a piece uh, on in in the in the side on the sides of the roads in Dufferin Paris and the Flamberis Pass. Uh, we've got two species of woodsier, so alpine woodsier and oblong woodsier. That's Again, that's another fern. Um, yeah. A man called Will Boots uh, fell to his death on Clogwinner Gardenev trying to collect these things. Um, yeah. They were they were so sought after by the Victorian pteridomaniacs, so these yeah. kind of crazy fern collectors. Pteridomaniacs. Um, <laughs> um, we've got, um, we've got uh, Arctic mouse ear. Um, there's only about eleven plants of that in the wild in Wales. Tufted saxifrage. There's only uh, seven plants of that in the wild in Wales. Um, Alpine sawwort. That's only found at a couple of sites. We've got um, alpine bistort, that's only found at one site. Um, we've got uh, a thing that you and I know well, Mike, uh, Snowden hawkweed, um, only four plants in the wild that we know about in the world. Um, and, uh, um, and we've got a plant called Derrick in Welsh, or Dryas octopetla, or Mountain Avens, just a couple of sites in Wales. We've got um, rosy saxifrage, or Irish saxifrage, which is extinct in the wild in Wales. Um, and luckily, um, a man called um, uh, Dick Roberts collected a little piece of it when it was last seen in the wild in nineteen in the late nineteen sixties, and that. That cutting has gone on to produce material which we now have in cultivation. Um, so we've got cuttings of cuttings of cuttings of these of this plant that we've maintained in cultivation. Um, so that's destined to go back into the wild in Wales. Re-released. And then we've got two invertebrates. So we've got a little thing called the Snowden rainbow beetle, which is absolutely gorgeous it's the most beautiful iridescent beetle it's also very very rare indeed um, we have a genetically distinct form of it here in wales and it is found only on erwitha um, uh, and it feeds on wild thyme um, it's worthwhile uh, searching on the internet for pictures of snowden rainbow beetle because it's absolutely beautiful um, and finally a tiny little thing called an arctic pea clam and this when i talk about that jigsaw of life this is a thing that's a bit like the blue sky or the green grass in the jigsaw the bit that you kind of think to yourself oh you know if i've lost that piece i can still make out the picture but actually you'd never be able to pass the jigsaw on to a charity shop or whatever without that piece so you know kind of one of those really integral pieces of nature it's a water cleaner and it's only ever been found in five upland lakes in wales um yes. so so it's a pretty varied mix of species that i look after but as you can tell from the numbers that i've given you yeah literally some plants on the very edge and to what degree robbie are they rare in the world or are they just rare 
here in Wales? So some of them are not particularly rare in the world scale. So um, things like tufted saxifrage is found all over the the kind of boreal zone of the world um, and into the Arctic circle. Um, I mean, I should just probably say what is an Arctic alpine? Well, mm. an Arctic alpine is an, a plant or an animal that's linked either directly to the Arctic environment or the alpine environment. And here in the UK, our Arctic alpines are things that have been left here by uh, post-glacially and have managed to survive clung on on in in the most kind of um cool cold places high up on the tops or in the backs of cums or on the tops of boulders and things um and so these things might be found elsewhere in the world but actually in the case of some of our arctic alpines here in wales because they've been here relicked in their little spots dotted around Areri, um for so long, they've become genetically quite distinct from the populations elsewhere in the world. Um, so um, I think a really good example of that is Arctic char, which we find living in Klimpadon. Arctic char, you find them kind of up in Norway and Sweden and Alaska and places like that. There's a few populations of them in the Lake District and in Scotland. Um, and the form of Arctic char that we have in Klimpadon is one called Salvinius alpinus sub, uh, variety perisii, uh, named after Klimperis, which is where it was originally found. And, um, and so it's evolved specifically to these upland lakes in the mountains of Wales and looks quite different from Arctic char that you find anywhere else in Wales. So although we're um, conserving things that might be quite common elsewhere in the world we're actually conserving genetics as well in the case of tufted saxifrage there's more genetic diversity across our tiny little population here in wales than there are in some of the great big populations up in uh up in northern europe and scandinavia um so you know that's quite important too um and I've already mentioned that the Snowden beetle is genetically distinct here. But then we've also got a weirdo amongst the bunch. We've got the Snowden hawkweed. Um, and that really is threatened on a world scale. Four plants in the wild, in the world. Now, Tim, Dr. Tim Rich found it, it was considered extinct. And a man called Dr. Tim Rich found a couple of those plants. Um, and as you know, Mike, because you helped me to do it, along with Alex Turner, um, we went back uh, last year and we uh, discovered that there were actually another two plants there. So, um, so four plants in the wild in the world, making it an endemic species in Wales. It's um, the stone hawkweed. It's not it's not very different, is it? it? The differences are quite subtle, aren't they, to make it a unique species. Can you explain why it's different? So, um, well, so I tend not to call myself a botanist <laughs> um, because I'm interested in all of nature and because I don't have any botanical qualifications. 
but when it gets to hawkweeds i get quite nerdy and um and this particular hawkweed i'm sorry to say you say it doesn't look very different i look at it with my set of eyes and actually think to myself <laughs> that looks really significantly different yeah. and the things that make it look different are the way that the flower structure is is the way that its leaves are it has these wonderful little black glandular and e-glandular hairs on its stem which um you've seen me hanging on a rope with my magnifying glass looking at and getting excited about these tiny millimeter long hairs um and um that for me is what makes it different the thing that really makes it different though is it reproduces by a very special means which is called apomixis. It produces clones of itself in its seeds. I'm not going to go into the deep, dark explanations of that right here, right now. But what that does mean is that all of the young plants look identical to the parents. And it's able to reproduce like that continuously until at some point, somewhere down the line, in the kind of vagarities of evolution um, there might be a slight genetic change which allows it to start um, outbreeding or or sexually breeding and then you get into the realms of uh, being able to see evolution happen in front of your eyes so these these apomictic what we call micro species which is what the snowden hawkweed is is a little piece of this process of how plants or how some plants go about evolving and so one of the things that we do by conserving these crazy micro species of, of hawkweed is enable that process to continue right okay yeah i'm reeling a little bit there robbie that's fantastic really interesting um what i need to do is take a break and when i come back i need to ask you i don't know how that refers to mountain leaders so if, if we're walking around we know commitable is a special place um because you know the sheep grazing is low so if we're walking with a group are we are we going to trip up over these things are we are we going to kick them off you know should should actually we be not not going to these places and um, but we'll just take a break first before you answer that it's a real pleasure to be talking to uh, an expert such as robbie blackhall miles did just make me wonder if you're aware that i run a art calpines for mountain leaders workshop uh, I run it in June, so it's the prime time of year. But if you are inspired to come out and see some rare flowers, then can I suggest you take a look at the uh, workshops page on my website, head to June, and you'll find the Art Calpines for Mountain Leaders. And uh, I suspect that's a workshop you might truly enjoy. Thank you. Back to the podcast. Uh, welcome back folks i'm here with robbie blackhall miles um, i won't list his job titles again but if you remember before the break i was asking him to talk about some of the special species that he's working with under the natura ambith program but also i'm slightly worried that there's so many of these things growing in the places that 
probably only us as mountain leaders and mountaineer instructors go to. So what's our relationship with those very, very rare things? And, and do we need to be careful where we're walking, Robbie? Um, generally, no. I wouldn't worry about being particularly careful where you walk. If you're in the back of Cummid, well, don't go clambering, clambering around on top of all the boulders. Um, there's some really very rare things indeed on some of those boulders. If you see a vegetated boulder, it is worthwhile stopping and having a good look at it because there's some plants that are on those boulders that are really, really very beautiful and worthwhile stopping and seeing. Some of those boulders contain things like purple saxifrage, which you'll see in kind of uh, February and March in full flower. And it's just absolutely flabbergasting how big the flowers are compared to the actual size of the plant. And to have something that pinky purple in flower in February and March is absolutely pretty amazing. And so, and I think that that's probably the thing that I want to say most is that it's not just the rare things that are important. Um, nature in its own right is amazing and it's these there's bits of it that we don't know and that we can't automatically see that might be actually very special or very important as part of that jigsaw of life so i was up at um a site in Areri recently um looking for a moss and um, and this moss only grows on just three boulders in the whole of Wales. And um, and I was looking for this moss and I noticed one of the boulders. I had a photograph of the boulder with me and I, you know, I kind of compared the two boulders. And this photograph of the boulder had marked on it the patches of the boulder where the moss was growing. And actually the moss had all been pushed down to the edges of the boulder and the top of the boulder was completely stripped of any vegetation. The reason for this being is because actually it was one of the best sites around that particular lake to be able to access the water to get into the water. So actually we have very often no knowledge of what the impacts of what we might be doing are and so the best way to deal with just being in this world, not not least of all uh, being in the mountains, is to just be aware and present of the environment that we're in. Know that it's a special place. Know that um, that there's other species in that environment with you. It's their home too. And don't go doing silly things like climbing on vegetated ledges and, and um, walking on areas that aren't kind of that you can see that there's lots of different yeah. lo there's lots of diversity in there's all that usual stuff don't drop litter you know um i think that it all becomes even more heightened in winter conditions when everything seems to be frozen yeah and where you think like you couldn't do any damage to the world because it's all under a blanket of snow and ice um and actually um we'll get into it winter mountaineering is something that i'm actually really into i love being in the mountains in winter um but you know just one uh ill-placed ice axe could actually wipe out a whole 10 percent of a population of a species in wales um and 
um, especially if it's done in inappropriate conditions. So, you know, there's there's lots of nuance to that question, um, but really just that idea of being informed, being is, aware. It, but it, it is worth saying to listeners, Robbie, isn't it? You're coming out this as a climber and walker yourself. You're not. Um, you're not. Uh, an ecologist, ethnoecologist, preaching to us. You are you are part of the community, aren't you? You are a walker and climber. I certainly am. Um, I wouldn't say I'm th I'm the best, <laughs> but I'm not certainly not the worst. The best um, the one having the most. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and some of the places that I do like to walk and climb are some of the most horrible, treacherous places <laughs> that you could possibly find yourself yeah. in in a rurry. I like those steep, grassy, wet slopes more than anywhere else in the world. In fact, I had a wonderful day out in the back of Cum uh, Glass recently uh, mm -hmm. on those steep, horrible, grassy slopes mm. kind of feeling quite scared at times mm. um and you know i try and get into the mountains two or three days a week um both my partner and i are both mountaineers in fact we the first all of our first dates were winter mountaineering <laughs> um so um you know yeah i mean that's the thing is that i by by working in the mountains doing what i do i get to match my personal interests in being in that environment and being in the mountains with my interests in nature um, and it's actually sometimes quite difficult to switch one off and switch the other on it that work tends to flow into personal life and yeah. vice versa um yeah what um what brought you to Sambarisum? was it the mountains or the the you know the climbing or the nature um so I'm born and brought up North Wales. Um, I don't sound like it. Um, that's because my mum, she's born and brought up in Cheshire and my dad's born and brought up in Scotland. But actually beyond that, we're about goodness knows how many generations North Wales. Um, so I was always here. But then when, I, then when I met my partner, we wanted somewhere to settle um, and Clamberis just seemed to be the obvious place. It was the place where we could have the most easy access to the mountains. Um, and that's the thing that that we have most in common is our love of the mountains. So we also have the lake here. You know, I'm I'm not that many yards away from the edge of the lake. Um, so and I'm a big I'm big into swimming. In fact, I'm more of a water baby than I am a mountain child. Um, you know, so I love being able to just run to the end of the road and go in the lake. So Clamberis is is the ideal location from both aspects. Well, I know it's a good spot because I, I moved out from I think next door, but two when you moved in, didn't I? You did, yeah. I came and knocked on your door and said, Hi Mike, and you went, I'm moving out in two yeah. days' time. That's a shame, isn't it? But that's a few years ago now, Robbie. So the Natural Beef project is quite a new one, isn't it? I mean, presumably you make a living doing all this stuff. What, 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 what is your job? What do you do on a Monday morning? You know, when you wake up and clock on at nine o'clock. Where are you doing that, and, and what do you do? Um, I spend most of my time. I've got my office here at home, um, so I spend most of my time. As well, I say I spend most of my time in my office. I don't. <laughs> I try and avoid the office at all yeah, costs. Yeah, yeah, but. 
yeah, um, answering emails and what have you happens at home. There's a lot of, with a big project like this, there's a lot of background stuff that needs to be dealt with. But um, when I first took on this job, I said, actually at my interview, I said, how much time am I gonna get in the field? And they said, well, how much time do you want? I said, well, at least two or three days a week. I said, and, and, uh, and they agreed to it. So from about May, well, the end of April through till September, I do literally spend two or three days a week in the mountains. Wow. Um, and that can be um, doing crazy things like going and finding Snowden hawkweeds with you. Mm -hmm. um, or it can be finding myself on my own skiddling. Do you know the word skiddling? Uh, it makes sense. <laughs> Playing around in water, looking yes. for Arctic pea clams, wow. or traipsing over nine 90 hectares of land looking for snowden rainbow beetles or um i'm on friday i'm going out to install new winter monitor winter monitoring equipment uh turf temperature monitoring equi equipment on the trinity face of Arwitha. um so my job can be you know all of the above or it can be going out and and having conversations with farmers or meeting up with consortiums of of other ecologists or giving talks or i'm giving a talk on climate change next week um you know it it's so varied are there you mentioned farmers are the complications you know we're thinking about this from a recreational point of view really are there you know how is that a bigger land use issue impacting on what you're doing? I think that it's quite important to say that there's no such thing as as bad grazing. Um, there's only inappropriate grazing. Um, there's a plant community up here in the mountains of Ururi that um, it's called uh, CG10, Calcareous Grassland 10. It's got wild thyme in it and lots of our endemic species oh, yeah. of eyebrights. And you know I'm a bit of an eyebright nerd. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and it's also um, a very important habitat for the Snowden rainbow beetle. And without sheep grazing, that habitat wouldn't exist here in Wales. Mm -hmm. Or it would exist in areas where there's kind of long-lying snow lie, but not too long-lying. So there's enough of an impact there. So the, so the grazing of the sheep keep that habitat just right in some areas. But then you know a bit too much stock and you won't have all the flowers a bit too little stock and you and and you won't have all the flowers um so you know it's all about nuance and balance and and that's one of the wonderful things that keeps me so interested in ecology is that nuance and balance and you know we've had grazing livestock here in the mountains of Aruri for you know 8000 years they've got to have had an impact on the ecology of this landscape and of course if you think about it historically the wildlife the wild grazers would have been monitored and managed by um by wild carnivores um and they've been replaced by farmers mm -hmm. um so so in some respects we need that grazing but when you get it just slightly out of balance in one direction or the other it can all go terribly wrong for that for that jigsaw um and ditto with people, with with recreationalists, as it was put in a document that I wrote the other day, which is a bit of a weird word, isn't it? Recreationalists. Mm. Um, 
a few too many, we've got problems. But actually enabling people to get into the mountains can actually um, engender caring in people for those environments. So it's about that balance of getting people out into the mountains, enabling people to connect with that environment and doing it in such a way as there's some control and some management there to enable them to have the best experience without them having the most negative impacts. Are you involved with getting these messages out to, um, we'll use the term recreationalist, it covers a lot, doesn't it? You, so you're, you've talked about meeting farmers. How are you getting these messages out to, to other groups of users? In time, we'll be, um, we'll be doing a lot of work with, with um, I mean, the, the project's quite, quite new, really, with the funding for the project only just being announced, really. Um, but in time, we'll be working a lot more with um, uh, the outdoor instructor community and, um, and the, the, uh, the people visiting the mountain environment more generally. Um, it's quite difficult some of that messaging mm. um, because it's very easy for me to go out you know I know everybody that's into the mountains in this village mm. um, and it's very easy for me to have those conversations with those people it's very mm. easy for me to come on your podcast mm -hmm. and have this conversation but what I would call the weekend warriors the people that are coming up from London or Liverpool or Manchester or whatever, particularly in the winter, if they've set their mind that they're going to go and do something, how do you have that conversation with them? How do you uh, enable them to understand that mm -hmm. climbing that route in unsuitable conditions isn't the best idea? They're not going to have a lot of fun. You know, they're going it, to, it's going to be dangerous. It's, and it's going to be dangerous for the environment as well how do you get the messages out to people about banana skins um you know it, it's quite a difficult thing so one of the things that we're really working on is creating no novel ways of getting messaging out so one of those things is this new turf temperature monitoring that we're looking that we're putting in on Plagwinaganev. yeah um, on the Trinity face, you know, the, tri the, the Trinities on Erdwitha, they're very different to some of the routes that there are in Comidwal, where there's already turf temperature yeah. monitors. Um, they're, they're gullies, they're, um, they've got a different aspect, they hold on to snow and ice for longer in a season, um, so they're not so temperamental. And they're very often the ones that people are going to travel for when they're when when it's snowed here. You know, the the first place people think to go and climb is let's go and do the Trinity, one or one of the Trinities. Mm. And so, enabling people to know about the conditions on that particular location enables us also to get that messaging out about how people can better look after the environment when they're in it and how they can make the best choices about when to climb those routes so whether the turf is frozen to five centimeters 15 centimeters 30 centimeters can make a big impact on 
um, whether you choose to climb it or not. Yeah. Um, and ditto with water. Yeah. You know, if people can see the temperature of the water somewhere, they might choose to swim in it or not. Yeah, yeah. It just, I'm just thinking about the winter there because you've got two problems, haven't you? You've got people trying to climb things when they're not fully frozen, but you've also got the fact that things are probably not fully frozen less often than they used to be. So is the climate, it's been warm the last 10, 12, 13 years in the winter. Is that having a big impact on the plants or is that having a big impact on the climbers? Will it be better for the plants if it is warm and people stop winter climbing? Or do you find people are trying to winter climb even though it's not really winter? How do we get around all that? Gosh, there's some big questions there, Mike. Um, firstly, the bit, the single biggest threat for the Altimontane uh, environment, um, high, that's the high mountain yeah. environment, is climate change. There is absolutely no doubt about it. Um, and that's not just mountains, but it's also islands. So islands and mountains, they're basically one and the same thing. They drive evolution. You get lots of speciation happening on them. You've, you, um, because things become isolated in those places. And so, um, and, and also because of the way that the mountain environment or the island environment is, you get climatic differences on either sides of the mountains. You get micro niches forming on in that uh, environment. Um, and what this allows for is these um, really uh, habitat specific species to be there. Okay. Um, as climate change is occurring and alongside that nitrification of the environment um, these specialists are being pushed out of their niches they're being forced to follow the temperatures that they prefer up the mountains and eventually they're going to get to the top and what happens when you are a plant and your your roots are in the soil and you get to the top of a mountain and you've got absolutely nowhere else to go you can't suddenly just fly off or run away and find a new mountain higher mountain to climb up you get stuck and eventually you die out so across the world the mountain the, the mountain environment and the species particularly the plant species that exist on them are at the absolute highest threat from climate change and i'm interested in that elsewhere in the world in south africa and in chile and in new zealand and and what have you as well we can take pressures off that we, we it's solving climate change is a bigger deal than i can cope with um i need an army i need literally everybody in the world to come on board to deal with that one um and that's a big ask um but what i can do is i can take pressure off and i think that that's what i'm asking people to do is take some of the pressure off so that those plants and invertebrates and things are better able to be able to cope with what's being thrown at them through climate change. 
Um, the impacts of climate change are actually, we're seeing them already in the mountains of Arari. Um, the grasses are growing taller and quicker and alongside nitrification of the environment that's happening. The nitrates that are impacting our mountains aren't necessarily coming from British agriculture. They might be coming from agriculture that's taking place soy farming in South America and coming on the Gulf Stream. Um, so, so that's a big issue in its own right. And the two, the warming of the climate and extra nitrogen are making the grasses and the, the more thuggy vegetation grow quicker. Um, and these very delicate plants are being outcompeted. Um, so that's really noticeable. The winter conditions thing, element of those questions that you asked, is also really noticeable. I'm noticing that the periods of time that we have suitable conditions to be in the mountains as winter mountaineers are changing, they're getting shorter, they're getting quite flashy, um, they're not happening in a regular manner, um, we're getting increased precipitation and that might have a positive impact for winter, winter mountaineers because actually what we might see is a lot more snow in the winter. Um, you know, we don't absolutely know what the impacts of climate change are going to be. But, you know, there's nothing I like more than kind of stomping up bucket steps in a nice snow-filled gully. Um, that's quite on a sunny day in the middle of winter. I can't think of anything more lovely, in fact. Um, but, um, but if you think about what that means for the environment, is more snow doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be better for mixed or ice climbing. It actually means that the land underneath is going to be more insulated and so less likely to be frozen. So it comes back to those ideas of nuance and really kind of saying, go out there, do some research, understand your art, use the resources that are available to you. The BMC website has got um, the Comid will turf temperature monitors on it and is going to have the um, the Trinity face turf temperature monitors on it. So there's resources out there. There's a white guide to winter climbing that will tell you which areas of the mountains not to go into in winter. Um, that will enable you to understand where you're going to have the most impact. Um, and And so, yeah, so that's really just about understanding as I say, understanding your art, um, going out there, finding out a little bit more about it and being aware, coming back to that awareness thing that just you being there is going to have consequences. The I would suspect that most of the mountain leaders, mountain instructors are listening to this uh, are the converted um, but they will always soak up more advice, more information um, and probably just as important is, how do they influence their colleagues? Would you have any thoughts on that, Robbie? Um, well, I think that firstly, mountain leaders are, and, and the outdoor education sector, full stop, actually, is in a really good position to deliver things like the countryside code. Um, 
for a lot of people entering the outdoors world, their first experiences might be a quick walk around Cummitwell. Their second experience might be, I really enjoyed that. I want to do something a little bit harder. And then a few experiences down the line, they might say, I probably need to get a little bit more knowledge about this. So let's hire a mountain guide or someone to take us out for a day and learn about navigation or whatever it might be. And that's an opportunity where the outdoor education sector has to really have an influence on um, Joe Public about um, mm. their environmental responsibility too. Can I just ask you a question about a countryside code? We, we've started calling it the secret countryside code. Um, do you know if there's any plans, because you're involved with Natural Resources Wales, are there any plans to do any PR or promotion of it anywhere? It, it seems very quiet since it was re relaunched. To be honest with you, no, I don't. Um, occasionally I see something about it. Um, and... Um, a friend of mine was involved in part of the relaunch stuff. Um, but I think really one of the things that the outdoor education sector could really do, take it upon themselves to do right now, is to pick that up and use it and be the first port of call for education around being in the outdoors. Yeah um they could the outdoor education sector could really help itself in that respect um yeah. because at some point there is going to be a realization that people and nature are not separate they are one and the same right and mm. um and there is going to be a need for people that are experienced in delivering natural history education We've got a new natural history G GCSE coming through the system now. Um, and the outdoor education sector is in a really good place to get involved in delivering education about the natural world and being in, in the outdoor environment. We we ought to move move on, Robbie. Um, and I know you want to talk about the future. Um, what happens next? What does the future hold for our uplands? That's another one of those big questions, isn't it? Um, I think that we are going to see some really quite significant changes. I'm. I think you know. I said earlier on in the podcast, um, nuance is everything in the world of of in the natural world um and um and there's a lot there's lots of emphasis on plant trees plant more trees there's a lot of emphasis on methane from cows there's a lot of emphasis on um on uh microplastics in the environment there's a climate you know we've got so many messages yeah. hitting us bombarding us but they've all lost nuance and um you know methane from cows yes factory farmed cows absolute nightmare but actually cows are really good at engineering ecosystems particularly in the upland environments and not 
you know the positives of what cows can achieve for um for endemic eyebrights completely outweigh their carb their their methane impact um so we might start seeing more cows in the upland i would really hope to see more cows in the uplands of wales they're they're a really good way of to of of increasing biodiversity uh turning grass into food in an environment where we can't grow crops and um and who doesn't love cows they're so beautiful um we're gonna see more trees in the uplands and i've just finished working with a student at Bangor university who's done an amazing study on what our upland kind of upper tree line uh woodlands scrub woodlands would look like in the context of wales and so um and there was a whole host of species that were in that community and a whole host of species that were missing and this idea of plant more trees needs the nuance because dependent upon where you're planting them on the hills they need to be appropriate and relevant um trees planted in the wrong place can have big negative impacts for biodiversity um so again we're talking about nuance but we do need more trees in our, our uplands but that shouldn't also come at the expense of our cg10 uh time rich eyebright rich snowden rainbow beetle rich grassland that needs sheep grazing to keep it open but at what time of year do we need to put the sheep on it to make sure that it remains like that so i think that there's going to there is going to be change in our upland environment i just hope that that change comes with with the nuance that we that we get the understanding quick enough on how to ensure that we've got all of the habitats all of the things that we want all of the time and i think that's the thing that's going to deliver that most is the welsh assembly government's new sustainable farming scheme mm -hmm. i hope that it comes good i hope that it comes good as equally for the farmers as it does for nature mm -hmm. um and um and i think that it has the potential to deliver that change in our montane environment in a way that is also going to benefit people and nature yeah there's big questions aren't there and, and one of the things that always stresses me out is the way it's uh, an either or debate isn't it it's reduced to the common denominators on twitter or whatever that you know you either have rewilding or you have factory farming and it's that nuance is really important isn't it there's definitely room for all this stuff in wales there really is and we never you know it's not like anybody wants to get rid of sheep farming completely is it you know it's an absurd thought but we just need to manage things a little more sensibly don't i we? think that one of the things that happened i'm gonna give it uh, um a plug now one of my favorite cheeses that's being produced in wales right now is a thing called brevu bach um it's made by a lady called carrie and she's got a cheese shop in uh, bethesda and um oh. and um she's making this brevu bach from ewes milk and the thing is that the mountains of wales used to be home to sheep that weren't producing meat they were producing cheese which wow. meant that, 
which meant that the milk was they were they were staying in the freeze in the middle slopes much mm. longer in order for them to be able to be milked just by moving the sheep up the hill a little bit later in the year doesn't mean we need to get rid of the numbers of sheep but it actually enables the plants to flower and yeah. set seed before the sheep go up and graze yeah. them all off so just that slight change in the way that sheep could be managed would have a big impact um, if you spend any time in the alps you'll you'll see that if you walk into an alpine meadow it's full of invertebrates full mm -hmm. of flowers and the cheese is amazing yeah i hadn't heard that cheese before because one of the issues is always that the meat's not terribly valuable and the wool's not terribly valuable there's not an organization looking for ways to make welsh mountain sheep more valuable is there Surely there's loads of initiatives going on about uh, increase initiatives to increase the price for wool um unfortunately our welsh sheep wool is a bit coarse it was mostly used for making carpets mm. um and still actually is um and um but you know slight subtle changes in our sheep breeds could help help to have a big big mm. impact um but you know th there's again it all comes down to the nuance but yeah. um so a big piece of work that i did um was looking at um uh, um that added value that comes with things like the word organic and um, the word nature friendly, or in the case of the research that I did, rare in the uh, and what and what monetary value is associated with those terms. That monetary those terms are called credence attributes, and that monetary value is termed a willingness to pay value. And so, you know, if you market. Um, if if you know the cat the, the welsh black cattle that are currently grazing on the slopes of Erdwitha were marketed in a manner where they were um you know kind of grazed on the slopes of Erdwitha and nature friendly etc etc there is an added value to that product that um currently isn't being kind of cashed in on yeah hey uh I think we could probably go on a while for, about that one as well, couldn't we, Robbie? We, we need to bring it to a close there. Was there anything else you want to share, you know, urgently before we do just, just finish this podcast? Um, I think the thing that I always say, um, and uh, to literally everybody, I mean, I've said it in this podcast, I can't solve climate change, but climate change really is the most significant threat to our upland environments and to the species in which which occur in them. And um, one of when I'm, I'm I'm often asked what the best thing that we can do to um, to to kind of in, uh, have have less impact is. And I think my my main answer to that question is don't waste, don't waste anything. Um, and that uh, goes down to don't waste packaging. So don't buy things in, in single use plastics and what have you, but also don't waste food. Don't waste the clothes that you're wearing. If you do 
you know, natural fibers, some of the natural fibers that are around are excellent. I wear wool all the time in the mountains. That's going to help our farmers. Um, and it's brilliant. And undyed, untreated wool keeps you warm and dry. Um, but um, but if you then do have to waste it, it will also go into the compost and decompose pretty quickly instead of plastics. Um, so don't waste. The one thing that anybody can do to help the upland environment is don't waste a thing. Robbie, that's an excellent place to finish. Um, and I'll follow up some of those things on Facebook notes from the hill and, and, and in blogs and stuff as well. We recently did a sustainability document for the Association of Mountaineering Instructors, which, which took some of those ideas. So I'll try and share that more widely. Uh, Robbie Blackhall Miles, Dilchmwawa, thank you very much. Dilch Mike, that was brilliant. We shall see you around, thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening, folks. That was a Outdoor Lives podcast brought to you by MyCrane.co.uk. You can listen to it ad-free on my Patreon channel. That's patreon.com forward slash MyCrane. And if you listen through Patreon, you also get the each episode as it's released. Thank you for listening. Bye now.